Testament reading for today is Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 20. The sermon text is 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 through 10. We'll be picking up at the very end of verse 2 and studying through verse 10. Again, I would like to invite you and encourage you to come to the second service. Uh, we will do a number of things there. We will also, one of the things we will do is um, listen to catechetical preaching. That's preaching centered on the doctrinal themes of our catechism. And as Phil was teaching the children, I was thinking of uh, the sermon I have prepared for you uh, this afternoon. Um, as I was writing it, I, I was struck yet again going, this is so important that we do this, brothers and sisters, that we teach the doctrines of the Christian faith regularly um, uh, to the congregation. Uh, we'll be uh, focusing on these two catechism questions that were just introduced in the sermon this afternoon, and, and these are very important truths for us to know and to understand. But let us go now to the reading of God's Holy Word, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 20. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand." This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we will pick up at the very end of verse 2, where Paul says to his co-worker Timothy, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Verse 2 of 1 Timothy 6 concludes with the words, Teach and urge these things. And I would like to begin this sermon today by considering these words. Paul's command to Timothy was to teach and urge these things. I take this to refer to the preceding section wherein Paul gave instructions to Timothy concerning his ministry to young and old, male and female, widows, elders, and finally bondservants within the congregation. Now Paul exhorts Timothy to faithfully teach and urge these things. Uh, To teach is to instruct. To urge is to call others to obey what is taught. And of course, this was not all Timothy was to teach. Timothy and all ministers of the gospel with him must, must teach the whole counsel of God's Word. They are called to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is 2 Timothy 4.2. And by now it should be clear to, the, to you that the central task of the minister is to teach God's Word and to urge the members of the congregation to obey it. This is the minister's work. And have you ever stopped to ask the question, why is the preaching and teaching of God's Word such a central element of the work of ministry? Why do we do this? Why do we gather together on the Lord's Day, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and devote so much time to the reading of Scripture, and to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God? Why do we do this? In brief, the answer is this, because truth matters. Truth matters. It is through the truth of the gospel that men and women come to be saved from their sins. And it is through the truth of God's word that men and women are sanctified, that is to say, changed, so that they might grow to become more like Christ. Truth matters. And so the truth of God's word must be proclaimed if men and women are to be saved from their sins and grow up in holiness. This is the work of the pastor, to teach God's truth and to urge men and women, young and old, to believe it and to obey it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a truth claim. To believe the truth of the gospel is to be saved. To reject the truth of the gospel is to remain condemned. And is this not what the most famous of all Bible verses teaches? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then the text continues, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. For whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So, to be saved from condemnation, one must believe upon Jesus the Christ, and if we are to believe upon Him, we must know the truth about God, about Christ, and what it is that He came to save us from. And this is why I am making the very obvious observation, truth matters. Truth matters. It must be taught. It must be proclaimed if men and women are to be saved from their sins. How do we come to be saved from our sins? It's through the truth. And so the truth must be proclaimed. 
And those who have believed upon Christ, those who have been saved from their sin and the condemnation that is due to them, they grow in holiness as they grow in their knowledge of the truth. This is why the Scriptures speak to Christians saying, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we see that transformation in the Christian life. Sanctification comes through the renewal of the mind. Truth matters. It is by the truth that we are saved, and it is by the truth that we are sanctified. As Christ has said, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To live according to the truth is to walk in freedom, light, and life. But to live according to a lie is to live in bondage, darkness, and death. So many walk in darkness, as you know. They walk in darkness because they live according to a lie. They claim to be free, but they are bound. They appear to be alive, but they are dead. But it is not so for the people of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so truth matters. And truth must be proclaimed. But what is truth? What is truth? That question has haunted men for a long time. And I could understand why men have been haunted by this question. It is hard to know for sure what the truth is. When left to ourselves with only our emotions and reason to depend upon. Wouldn't you agree with this? It is hard to know for sure what the truth is. But what do we say in response to the question, what is truth? As Christians we say, God is truth. And more than this we say, God has revealed Himself to us generally in the world that He has made and much more clearly in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the God of truth has not left us alone to wander about in the darkness. No, instead God has spoken. The truth may be known therefore. Now this does not mean that The truth may be known exhaustively. There are many things that remain a mystery to us. But the truth of God may be known sufficiently as we encounter it in the world and especially in God's holy word. So why are ministers called to preach the word? Why is this their task? Why are they called to teach and urge these things? Because truth matters. It is by the truth of the gospel that we are saved, and it is by the truth that our minds are renewed and our lives transformed. And for this reason, Timothy and every minister with him was to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He was to practice these things and immerse himself in them so that all would see his progress. He was to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching. He was to persist in this, for by doing so he would save both himself and his hearers. That is 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16, a text that we considered some time ago. Brothers and sisters, the word of truth is our spiritual bread. It energizes our spiritual life. But if it is corrupted, then that which once brought life and nourishment brings only sickness and death. And this is why we have heard Paul throughout this letter exhort Timothy to teach and urge these things within the Christian Congregation. 
Now, there is obvious application here for elders. Elders must be faithful to uphold and guard the teaching ministry of the church. Pastors must be faithful to teach God's Word and to urge the congregation to obey it because truth matters. But what about application for the congregation based upon this first point of the sermon? Well, first of all, I wonder, are you aware of the power of the truth? Have you thought of of the power of the truth? Do you see how powerful it is uh, to transform us? Do you agree that when the truth is known and believed, it is in fact transformational? Brothers and sisters, we must recognize this, that what we believe to be true does determine the trajectory of our lives, and it impacts every decision that we make. I'm afraid that we are obvious, uh, often oblivious, rather, uh, to this, this reality. Rarely are we even mindful of our deeply held beliefs and convictions and the way that they affect our outlook on life, our priorities, our mood, the way that we speak and act, and the way that we spend our time and money. Where, rarely are we even mindful of, of how these deeply held convictions that we have uh, produce all of this in our life. But we must recognize that everyone has beliefs and convictions that inform how they live. I think some are more aware of these convictions than others. And some have thought them through more carefully than others. But all do have beliefs and convictions. And here I am simply urging you to see that what you believe to be true concerning God Concerning this world which He has made, it is powerful. It is very impactful. Truth matters. Uh, To illustrate, I might ask you to think of the difference that believing or not believing in the existence of God makes in a person's life. Just use your imagination for a moment. Think of how differently you would live if you did not believe that God exists. You would live very differently. You would spend your time differently. You would have different priorities. Whether or not you believe in the existence of God would radically affect your view of the world, the meaning and purpose of your life, and the importance of the decisions you make, among many other things. So friends, to believe the wrong things means that your life is on the wrong path. But to believe what is true means that your life is on the right path. So please do not underestimate the power of the truth. In truth there is freedom light and abundant life. But the way of falsehood is darkness and leads only to death. Do not underestimate the power of the truth. And secondly, to those who know the truth of God's Word, I ask, are you eager for more of it? Are you eager for more of it? It should be clear to all that believing or or not believing in the existence of God will have a significant impact upon the trajectory of your life. But what about other beliefs? What about other, other beliefs? We might ask, what is the nature of God? What are His attributes? What are His plans and purposes? What is His relationship to suffering, the suffering we experience in this life? Is He in control of all things or no? How can we stand before Him right? What is His will for you? What is His will for the church? How does He change His people? On and on I can go asking these theological questions about God, us, the world that He has made. But my purpose here is to move you to agree that truth matters, and having agreed that truth matters, I pray that you would desire more and more of it. A man walking in total darkness would be grateful for just a little bit of light so that he could see the truth concerning his surroundings. But he would not be content with just a little light, would he? No, I think a little light would make him hungry for more. He would naturally desire more and more light until he is able to fully perceive the truth of the world around him. And I pray that this is true of you. I pray that this is true of you. 
that knowing Christ, that coming to the knowledge of the truth would only cause you to hunger for more and more truth so that you might walk in it and live according to it. But we do know that some men love the darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil, John 3.19 says. I pray that you are all lovers of light and not darkness. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, the Apostle exhorts us. Thirdly, having agreed that truth matters and being hungry for the truth yourself, I urge you to pray the Lord's blessing upon the ministry of the Word in this congregation and for those who minister it. Do you pray for this? Do you pray the Lord's blessing upon the ministry of the Word in this congregation? Do you pray for those who are responsible to minister the Word of God in this place? Uphold them in prayer, brothers and sisters. God's truth will certainly prevail in the end. I believe this. And more and more I long for this characteristic of the new heavens and earth. I long for this characteristic. There will be many wonderful things in the new heavens and earth. And sometimes I find myself longing for one aspect of it more than others. Think of it. In the new heavens and earth there will be no sickness or death. Do you ever just sit and long for that day when there will be no sickness or death? In the new heavens and earth there will be no sin. Do you ever long for that day when you will no longer be tempted to sin, where you will no longer be able to sin? But think of it, in the new heavens and new earth there will be only truth and no falsehood. Only truth there. No falsehood. The question, what is truth, will not be asked in that place. For all things will be seen clearly in the light of the glory of God. And I long for that day. And I do also believe that truth will prevail in this world. Never will it be snuffed out. Why will it never be snuffed out until Christ returns? Above all, it will not be snuffed out because God is truth. He has given us His Word and He will preserve it till the end. But He has also designed this world in truth. God's truth permeates and governs the created world. And so things that are false in this world do over time self-destruct. Perhaps you have noticed this in the lives of individuals, maybe your own. Perhaps you have noticed this in marriages, in families, in communities, and in nations, where falsehoods and lies are predominant. There we will find division and disorder leading ultimately to death. Things that are false will not last. God will judge all that is false in the end. He may even judge what is false now, but things that are false will also naturally self-destruct with the passing of time, for they are fundamentally flawed. Individuals, families, and governments that live contrary to God and to the world He has made, they will not last, much less thrive. And I want for you to think about that parable that Jesus told regarding the man who built upon a rock and compared him to the man who built his life upon the sand. Those who disregard God's truth as revealed in His Word and in His world are doomed for destruction. And this is why I say that truth will prevail, 
not only in the end, but also in this world. The things that are true will last by the grace of God, whereas things that are false will not. And this is according to His design. Truth will prevail. I'm confident in this. But we should not forget that until the Lord returns to make all things new, a battle will rage between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We are the light of the world, brothers and sisters. This is what Christ says in Matthew 5.14. We are to never forget it. But also do not forget that the world hates the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. That is John 3.20. And so I am saying, please pray for the ministry of the Word in Christ's churches and also for those who minister the Word of God. The Word's teach and urge these things, they remind us that truth matters, that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, and that ministers are to preach God's Word, urging men and women, young and old, to obey it. Truth matters, and in verses 3-5, through Paul warns against false teachers and their false doctrine by exposing their selfish motives and warning of their bad fruit, What does falsehood produce? What we see here in this text, falsehood produces ungodly division. Verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension, slander, evil, suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There is a lot here, but we will be able to move through it rather quickly. What makes a false teacher false? What makes a false teacher false? A false teacher is false because he teaches a different doctrine. Doctrine simply means teaching. And when Paul warns against a different doctrine, he implies that there is a standard doctrine to which all teaching within the church is to conform. There is a standard. So what is the standard? What is our teaching to agree with? If you look at the end of verse 3, we see that our teaching is to agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word translated as sound means healthy or wholesome. Christ's teaching is sound because it is good, right, true, and complete. It is healthy and wholesome teaching. It is teaching that we are to conform to. And where are these sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ found? Well, I suppose the first place we would look is to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There the words of Christ are recorded for us. But if we listen very carefully to the words of Christ in the Gospels, we will see that we must look to the Old Testament Scriptures also. Christ appealed to them as authoritative, and Christ taught that He was the fulfillment of those Scriptures, the Law, Prophets, and Psalms. So the words of Christ compel us to go to the Old Testament for true doctrine. And the words of Christ in the Gospel do also compel us to go to the writings of His Apostles, for they were His special representatives. They saw Him in His resurrection. They were commissioned by Him. They performed signs and wonders just as Christ did to show that their word was true. And so what is our standard for truth? The Word of God is our standard. And we know that Christ, the eternal Word of God, came in the flesh. The Word of God is our standard. Christ is our standard. 
And what do these sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ produce? We see at the end of verse 3, His teaching leads to godliness. Godliness here means to hold to right beliefs and to be devout in practice. The teaching of Christ produces holiness, in other words. The teaching of Christ produces right belief within us. It also produces right practice. Brothers and sisters, if you claim to be a Christian and your life is permeated by sin, something is wrong. So many in this world claim to be Christians and yet they live in sin perpetually. Something is amiss. True faith in Christ is going to produce obedience to Him. When we come to faith in Christ, we confess that He is Lord, that He is Master. And what do servants do in relation to their Master except obey Him? Brothers and sisters, true faith is going to be accompanied by works, good works. And so we see here in this passage that the truth of God's Word, the truth of Christ, is going to lead to godliness. Now we know that none are perfect. There is no Christian on planet earth who is perfect. But nevertheless, their life is going to be characterized by right belief and by right practice. But the false teacher refuses to submit to the teaching of Holy Scripture, we learn here. And why does he do this? Why does the false teacher refuse to submit to the teaching of Holy Scripture? I suppose there could be many reasons for it, but Paul mentions two. One, in verse 4, we learned that he is puffed up with conceit. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. There are some very strong words here in verse 4 in the Greek language. The English phrase, he is puffed up with conceit, is the translation of only one Greek word. So it's a very potent word. One Greek word is here translated by an entire English phrase, he is puffed up with conceit. Listen to the definition that one Greek lexicon provides of this Greek word. It means to be so arrogant as to be practically demented, to be insanely arrogant, to be extremely proud, to be very arrogant. And so Paul says that these false teachers will not submit to the Word of God. They will not accord with the teaching, the sound, wholesome, and healthy teaching of Christ because they are so very arrogant. They are puffed up with pride and with conceit. And I think this is a very accurate description of the one who promotes false doctrine. His arrogance is so great that he thinks he knows better than God. He will not submit to the Word of Christ in the church, but seeks to promote his own doctrine. He is so arrogant, he is practically demented, The one who is puffed up with this kind of pride will not do what James calls us to do, which is to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That is James 1.21. This is the starting point of the Christian life. When God draws a sinner to Himself through Christ by His Word and Spirit, He humbles him so that he may receive His Word. Submitting to it in all humility. But the one who promotes false doctrine in the church is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing, though he thinks he understands everything. And he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. 
The English phrase, he has an unhealthy craving, is also the translation of a single Greek word, which means to have an unhealthy or morbid, that is sick, desire for something. And what do these arrogant and ignorant false teachers desire? They desire controversy. They love to quarrel about words. They love to debate things. And this makes perfect sense. If someone is so arrogant as to be practically demented, then this one will love to engage in controversy and to quarrel, for this will be the way that they display their brilliance to everyone. Do you understand? Uh, See, debate, controversy, quarrel gives the prideful person an opportunity to show everyone else how much they know. I've known men like this. And of course, they defend their controversial and quarrelsome ways by saying, but doctrine matters, words matter. It is important that we talk about these things in the church. And of course, that is true. Doctrine does matter. Words do matter. In fact, the church is called to contend for the faith. Paul himself did that, and sometimes he did that very strongly. But that is not what Paul is condemning here. He is condemning those who are arrogant, who refuse to submit to the word of Christ, who love controversy and quarrels, and seem to run to them at every opportunity. So how could you tell the difference between a bold and righteous contender for the faith and one who is controversial and quarrelsome? Well, attitude does have a lot to do with it. So too does where they place the emphasis. Do they run to the truth and seek to uphold it? Or do they fixate upon the controversial things and run to them at every opportunity? Do they build up or tear down? And what about their timing and delivery? In fact, it's a little hard to describe the difference between the two. But you do know it when you see it. As a parent, for example, you know the difference between an honest question from your child and a defiant question, don't you? There's a difference. The words spoken by the child might be exactly the same, but you know the difference. The attitude, posture, tone, timing, and overall delivery reveals the heart, and so it is in Christ's church. Some ask difficult questions and raise controversial issues because they wish to know. And that is good. But others run to controversy because in their pride they love to quarrel. Christ said you will know them by their fruits, and the same applies here. What do those with an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words produce? Verses 4 and 5 tell us envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And so this is why Paul wrote to his co-worker Titus saying, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The second thing that Paul mentions concerning the motivation of the false teacher is found at the very end of verse 5, with the words, Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What an interesting little phrase here. These false teachers who are puffed up with conceit, who run to quarrel and who love controversy, stirring up division in the church, what motivates them? Well, among other things, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, these people 
who love controversy think that they will profit from religion somehow. And as I have stated before, there is money to be made in religion. And it is clear that some are drawn to hold positions of power within the church because they desire wealth. They care little about the truth but are willing to say whatever needs to be said to gain a following and to prosper in the things of this world. I probably do not need to give you examples, brothers and sisters. You can look around and, and, and imagine who they are. You, you see them in our culture. But here I need you to understand that religion is good, brothers and sisters. Religion is good, but there is such a thing as bad religion. And we must keep this in mind. Some men wish to be honored as leaders within the church so that they might profit from it. Some desire money. Others desire notoriety. Neither are appropriate motivations for Christian service. And I would imagine that persecution and suffering will have a way of separating the wheat from the chaff. What will those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain do when persecution comes against the church? What will they do? One of two things. They will either run away or they will alter their teaching to conform to the world around them to remove the offense and escape the threat. So false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But in verse 6, Paul reveals to us what is truly beneficial, saying, But godliness with contentment is great gain. This is what truth produces in us. Truth produces godliness and contentment. And pay careful attention to this. Godliness, that is to say devout belief and right practice, is not a means to gain, but it is itself great gain when accompanied by contentment. Do you see the difference here? The false teacher pretends to be godly, not because he sees godliness as beneficial in and of itself. No, for the false teacher, religious devotion is a means to get earthly gain. But the true believer and the true servant of Christ understand that godliness along with contentment are themselves the true treasure. Godliness and contentment are the true treasure. But godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says. I think that is one to memorize. Wouldn't you agree? It's short. It has, has a ring to it, doesn't it? But godliness with contentment is great gain. Memorize that verse, brothers and sisters. In other words, do you want something of supreme worth? Do you want something of supreme value? Do you wish to be truly blessed in this world? Then pursue godliness. Pursue right belief and devout practice. And do not pursue it because you think that by having it you will gain something else. That is wealth, health, prosperity or some other thing. No, pursue godliness because godliness is itself a treasure. It is a treasure. And Paul reminds us to pursue contentment too. Pursue godliness and contentment. They are great gain. To be content is to be satisfied with what you have. The one who is content is satisfied in God and with God's will for them. As I have said before, contentment does not equal complacency. There is nothing wrong with working to better your circumstance or praying for relief from some suffering. But even as we work and pray for change, we must pursue contentment. We must be at peace with our station in life. But godliness with contentment is great gain, the Apostle says. And of course he is right. In verse 7 he explains 
why this is true. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. I think clearly the Apostle had Ecclesiastes 5, which we read at the beginning of the sermon in mind as he wrote these words. That passage is so filled with wisdom and with truth as it warns against the vanity or emptiness of spending your life chasing after wealth. We came into the world with nothing, we're going to leave with nothing. Or to quote Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. And it was because Job knew this that he was able to say, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1.21. The one who spends their life chasing after money and possessions lives an empty life. But godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come, 1 Timothy 4.8. It is far better to chase after godliness and to be content with what you have As Ecclesiastes 5 so beautifully says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days, I think this is referring to the difficult days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is a good thing, brothers and sisters. To find enjoyment in what you have, to eat and to give thanks to God for the food, to drink and to rejoice in what God has provided for you, to do the work that God has given you to do and to be happy. Uh, This is contentment. The one who is content is free from covetousness. The one who is content is thankful. The one who is content is filled with joy, whether he has little or much. In fact, you'll notice here that Paul calls us to be content with food and with clothing. I think this means with food and with adequate shelter. If we have food and if we have adequate shelter, we are to be content with these things and we're to give thanks to God for what He has provided for us. So few find this gift of contentment. And how sad it is to think that men and women spend their days miserable inwardly because they choose to be ungrateful, jealous of others, and fixated upon what they do not have, even if they have much. But what a beautiful gift contentment is. Those with much and those with very little may have it if only they would choose to be grateful to God for His provision, to rejoice in their lot in life, and to truly enjoy what is theirs, their work, their food, and their relations, all to the glory of God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In verses 9 and 10, Paul contrasts the great gain of godliness and contentment with the curse of worldliness and discontentment, saying... But those who desire to be rich, those who make money and possessions their aim, their love, they fall into temptation, into a snare, and in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains." As we move now towards the conclusion and some final points of application, please allow me to draw your attention to how prevalent the theme of desire is in this whole passage. 
Notice the theme of desire. Truth matters, and for this reason it is important for us to guard our minds. But our desires matter too. And for this reason, it is important for us to guard our hearts. Not only do the false teachers fail to conform to the teaching of Christ, they are also described as being conceited, having an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words, and desiring the things of this world. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They desire to be rich and thus fall into temptation, to a snare and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So I draw your attention to this constant emphasis upon desire, craving, these issues that reside within our hearts. Why do I do this? It's to show you that filling our minds with sound doctrine cannot be our only concern brothers and sisters. Did you hear that? Filling our minds with sound doctrine cannot be our only concern. As important as sound doctrine is, if we are to be found faithful to the end, we must keep our hearts too. We must keep even our desires in check. Learning to love that which God loves and hating that which God hates. And I'm afraid that the world and even some within the church have forgotten that we do have control over our desires. There are some things that we should love and other things that we should hate. There are some attractions that are right and some that are wrong. And just as we are responsible to control our thoughts, words, and deeds, so too we are responsible to control our desires and our affections. Our affections are simply another aspect of our inner life over which we have control. And this is why the scriptures command us saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You're to obey God by setting your love on the right things, God supremely. And the scriptures also warn us here, saying that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The meaning is this, do not love money supremely. Do not make it the desire of your life. The scriptures command us to love God supremely, and they warn us against the love of money and other sensual desires because we are responsible to control even our desires, bringing them into conformity to God and His Word by His grace, with His help. Indeed, in Christ we have been set free to do this very thing. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Galatians 5, 24-26. Did you hear it? Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Prior to faith in Christ, as we walked according to the old self, our passions and desires were misdirected. They drove us in the wrong way. But in Christ, those old passions and desires, the worldly ones, have been put to death. We have new desires, new passions in Christ. We are to walk according to the Spirit now. And so truth matters. Let us be sure to guard our minds. But our desires matter too. Let us be sure to keep our hearts pure lest we wander away from the faith and pierce ourselves with many pains. Brothers and sisters, godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's bow for a word of prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, what a marvelous truth it is that our sins have been taken away through faith in Christ. He atoned for them on the cross. He paid our debt. He stood in our place. But that is not the only truth of the gospel. It is also true that we have the regeneration of the Spirit by your grace, O Lord. You have made us new, and you are sanctifying us. We pray that you would do that very thing in our congregation, in our lives individually, that you would sanctify us according to the truth. Fill our minds with truth, O Lord, and change our hearts. Father, give us this precious gift of godliness and contentment. Lord, may we aim at that. May we desire to have that above all else. Lord, if we are in love with the things of this world, show us that error and help us to amend it. Help us to turn from it truly and to make you, O God, our our supreme love. Father, reorder our priorities. Change even our passions so that we desire the things that you desire and love the things that you love. Bless your church corporately. Bless your people individually. May we walk in your ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.